Hello everyone, it's October 29th, 2019. This week is an IAC recap. We got the highlights on all the cool stuff we saw, all the cool things we heard, and all the cool people we met. So let's talk about that. Sound cool? Okay, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 233 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. And we're back. Good to hear you guys as disembodied voices again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was almost uh, I was almost able to pretend that you guys weren't pretend voices in my head mm -hmm. uh, when we were all together. Well, I mean, you can maintain the illusion just to match you that now you're seeing things, too. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, oh, no. So, yeah. Oh, no. Don't. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> I shared a B&B &B with the... Uh, Two imaginary friends, and they made me sleep on the couch. <laughs> well, it was a poor <laughs> worst imaginary friends ever. Yeah. Hey, that says a lot more about you than it says about us, buddy. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's down to the fact that I got there. You know, I was like the last person to arrive. You guys got there a whole day before I did. So, and and I think I would have been more kind of like uh, equitable about the whole thing if I didn't just get back from a red eye and mm -hmm. just needed to just crash on the first bed yep. I could reach. So that's why mm -hmm. I picked the room I did. You uh, take a red eye, you get a bedroom. That's true because I only had like you know an hour and a half flight it, it was much easier for me you guys mm. caught the worst of it oh yeah and i i told you guys right or i guess i tweeted it i forget how i told you guys but i had my my first uh go around landing abort <laughs> yeah talk about this what happened yeah so um it was a 6 a.m flight from from georgia to uh dallas because i was out visiting my partner's uh, family for her mom's uh, 60th birthday party. And so anyway, it was, you know, a very smooth, very uneventful flight. And then we are literally seconds away from touching down. And I'm like, all right, great. Ready for, you know, a nice little touchdown because I don't like flying. I don't like heights. And suddenly the nose of the plane goes up and just full throttle and the guy next to me kind of turns and looks at me like what the hell is happening <laughs> and so i'm guessing he's never experienced that before i hadn't but i kind of guessed it because i was like yeah you know i'm sure there was just some issue where some aircraft wasn't where it was supposed to be and we had to abort our landing we're just going to do uh you know a, a circle and we'll come back down hopefully 20 minutes or whatever and sure enough after like five minutes the guy you know the pilot gets on the the comm and tells us all, hey, everybody. So uh, I want to apologize for uh, the last few minutes. As you can imagine, we were quite busy up here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you said that. And then, uh, yeah. And basically, uh, apparently, it, was, it wasn't very clear what he was saying to me because, you know, I don't know. I was half asleep. Uh, I had to get up at 2 a.m. to get a drive to the airport. But evidently, uh, a pilot made a wrong turn, whether it was the pilot's fault uh, a pilot on the ground made the wrong turn, and whether it was him or uh, air traffic control, but he basically got somewhere that, you know, didn't make our landing safe. I don't know if that means he turned into our runway or he was crossing our runway while we're trying to land. And so, uh, yeah, so we had to, mercifully, it was like, there was no turbulence. It was clear. The plane was running smoothly. And so that's why I was like, shit, something bad didn't happen to the plane, you know? And so, yeah, uh, but yeah, it was a little stressful. My palms were definitely sweaty on my return flight. The second uh, they opened the service, I asked for a Bloody Mary double <laughs> <laughs> ASAP. And the guy was nice about getting that to me. So, but I'm happy to be on the ground and not having to fly uh, until December. So <laughs> luckily, uh, aborted landings are a lot less traumatic than aborted takeoffs because aborted takeoff is like, oh boy, our engine is dying. 
Yeah. Um, oh we're going to sit God. on the tarmac for a while. Aborted landing, it's, yeah. It's like, oh, well, we can still fly. That's an option. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like you could we could go on and on about, about uh, flight stories. But the thing that got me, so basically the entire East Coast, or I got like the East half of, of the Midwest was all just turbulence when I was flying out. And oh, um, so the, the, when we landed, the person behind me takes out their phone and they go, um, yeah, so it was, you know, it's this one storm and it took us two hours to get through it. I don't know why we didn't just go around it. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, we were in the storm for two, three hours. Like if it, if it was a localized storm, mm-hmm. how long do you think it would have taken to go around it instead if going through it took three hours? <laughs> just like an absolute, just totally ignored how, uh, how, yeah. you know, the real world actually works. Those are fun airplane stories. Let's talk about some spaceflight history. And we don't have a topic, I guess, this week because we didn't do one last week or the week before, rather. But we have a clue. All right. So uh, the clue for next week is in 1998. Uh, it is Wrinkly Guinea Pig. That's my clue. Hmm. All right. So, <laughs> okay. So 1998 Wrinkly Guinea Pig. So that's a fairly recent one. I always like these. I know what all those words mean. <laughs> 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 That's kind of the point, right? Wrinkly yeah. guinea pig. No idea here. I don't know either, but uh, if anyone out there knows, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. In the news, what we saw at the IAC conference. So I guess we're just going to spend most of this episode talking about that. Because why not? Quite a bit happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, so first we have to thank our, our supporters on Patreon. We currently have 114. Um, you guys made this absolutely possible. There's no way we could have done this on our own. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and our thank you to you guys is really going to be all of the interviews that came out of this. We we learned so much, and I, I hope that we can actually talk about some of the actual papers that we saw, but like the real key here was getting face-to-face and talking to people, and it, it really makes a huge difference um, when it comes to planning future interviews. And then uh, on a similar note, um, I think uh, all three of us agree that we need to give a special shout-out to Richard Durden, who's uh, our community manager and a producer of the show, um, and um, I've been calling him our, uh, our schmoozer-in-chief. Um, because he he went out there, he got our name out, he got uh, our face out there, um, and handed out a million business cards and picked up about 1.5 million uh, in return. That sounds about accurate. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the interviews that are going to be coming up on the show are, are thanks to Richard. So um, he was like to... he was like a fish in water at that conference. I swear he yeah. was like that was his zone. Yeah, and he was our personal tour guide of uh, DC, uh, the DC metropolitan oh, area. Oh yeah. So he knows it. So. Udvar Hazi, I was so, <laughs> I basically, yeah, got a personalized tour. It was just wonderful. So <laughs> that's my own extra shout out uh, to you, Richard. <laughs> Thanks for letting me uh, give me uh, a personal tour of Udvar Hazi. Yeah, so we, we got David and I, or uh, sorry, Dennis and I got in early and we went to Udvar Hazi and we saw a bunch of stuff and David unfortunately didn't get to go on Sunday because he didn't get until later. And then we were going to go later in the week and it just, it never worked out. We, we couldn't pull ourselves away. So poor David got to see, um, the downtown, uh, air and space museum, um, Mm. which I mean, it's pretty darn good. There was uh, Skylab two. There was, um, which I loved. Yeah. Uh, there, there was, uh, Neil's, uh, EVA suit. Uh, on display there was glenn's um, mercury yep glenn's mercury 
there was uh, Soyuz, there, I mean, just, you know, all sorts of great things. And it is the Air and Space Museum, so there was even the Wright Flyer and yeah. the Spirit of St. Oh, Louis, yeah. you know, so yeah. you, like you get mm-hmm. to see all the very first airplanes ever X-1? made. X-1? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the X-1. The X-1. Yeah, pretty uh, not crazy. Sad. So I, I don't know. It, the, the, we just did so much. It's it's hard to kind of to put this together. But I guess one of the really cool things that happened um, was we met up with a listener on Friday and we had this discussion uh, after dinner uh, mm. <laughs> that was so good. The listener that we met up with was uh, Gurbir Singh. And um, he hosts another podcast, which none of us had listened to, and we all immediately subscribed to it as soon as he described <laughs> it. Um, so that's called Astro Talk UK. And um, so basically, he's he's a blogger and an author. So most recently, he wrote a book called The Indian Space Program. And I think he said it was like six or 700 pages. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly thick book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Indian Space Program. It is subtitled India's Incredible Journey from Third World Towards the First. And it's about ISRO and its history. Um, and so his podcast, he described it as basically all the interviews that don't quite fit into books. Um, he wraps them up and puts them out on this podcast. So I have not had a chance to listen to it, but if if talking to him in person is any indication, uh, this is a valuable uh, resource to subscribe to. Um, but Gravier was really, really nice, and he ended up having this long conversation with us about the week that we had all just had because we were mm-hmm. all kind of um, kind of overwhelmed. And he did a really good job at. Uh, helping us kind of channel all of this excitement into a productive conversation. One of the things that he did was he he made each of us in the room, uh, himself included, talk about, you know, one or two things that we really took away from the show. So Richard actually was there, of course, and he uh, he can't be on the show tonight. But he he gave us his thoughts, and honestly, um, I'm I'm pretty close to Richard. These are these were some of my favorite things as well. But his, his mm-hmm. big takeaways were um, we're going to be seeing more ion propulsion in small satellites, and also in particular the success of the Marco satellites, um, which are the two cubesats that uh, rode along to Mars and relayed insights. Uh, entry, descent, and landing data back to NASA faster than normal, right? Because what mm-hmm. what normally happens is it gets relayed up to a satellite in orbit, and then that satellite collects everything and then sends it all back later. And in this case, we had two CubeSats that were just there to relay data. And they did they did such a, a fantastic job that uh, Richard and, and I absolutely agree. Richard believes that this one success is going to be a um, great motivator to us seeing similar missions in the future for for small spacecraft, including um, some really crazy things like we saw. Uh, oh yeah, correction from Richard real quick, just a clarification. Marco used cold gas propulsion, not ion propulsion. Um, so yeah, ion propulsion in small sets is one thing. Uh, the success of Marco is another thing uh, in pushing uh, small spacecraft to do big things. Um, one of the sessions that we sat in on, um, I, I no, Richard was there. I know I was there. And I think at least one of you two was there as well. It was just a session talking about using small sats for deep space exploration. So through the entire week, um, we were constantly seeing people designing missions for CubeSats and talking about how CubeSats can do X, Y, and Z. And this session, it was just, I mean, it was just that and nothing else. And one of the really crazy things that we saw was uh, somebody from NASA who had actually built a, uh, uh, built a plan, let's say, had designed a plan <laughs> to allow CubeSats to aero capture 
um, mm. which is really bizarre because, you know, we don't think about CubeSats as having enough room to do error capture. But the idea is it's this system that you can shove a CubeSat in that's basically a heat shield on the front, a back shell behind it, and then around it sort of this Elizabethan collar that uh, drastically increases the uh, the drag to weight ratio. And what's really cool is that you can uh, fly through the atmosphere. And even though you don't have thrusters, you know, you, you have to hit sort of a, um, a relatively narrow range, but it doesn't matter what the actual atmospheric properties are that day, because, you know, uh, atmospheres uh, change on a daily basis. Um, you can hit a very, uh, a relatively specific target by discarding this collar um, at a certain point through your travel through the atmosphere. So you kind of fly through the atmosphere, see how much delta V you're building up, and then uh, jettison the heat shield when you're approaching that final number, and you can get the rest of the delta V that you need from this smaller heat shield. Um, and then you get to drop the back shell and the heat shield and, and go into orbit. And using this method, you you can basically use aero capture, and you only need uh, you know 25 or 50 uh, meters per second of delta v to circularize your orbit, and that's something that's eminently doable with a uh, with a cubesat. I think one of the things that we really learned is keep an eye out for cubesats. We're going to be seeing cubesats do some pretty crazy things. I know that we've always talked about being able to send lots of cubesats everywhere, but the fact that we're seeing um, ion propulsion systems not only being uh, described, constructed, and tested, but also being installed on CubeSats now. It's it's really fantastic. Um, like one mission in particular to look out for is the Ice Cubes mission that's going to uh, that's going to the moon, and that's doing uh, a really bizarre uh, low thrust profile where they're you know kind of zipping all over the place um, doing some weird uh, Lagrange point kind of uh, you know three body dynamics and you know ice cube is not to be confused with ice cubes the nano racks not competitor but somebody who's doing something similar with nano racks and putting uh, <laughs> uh, payloads on, on ISS um, but I mean uh, oh and then the other thing that Richard was was really into was um, nuclear thermal proportion there are some a lot of people really pushing for it there are some really reasonable uh indications that that's uh on the near horizon and then richard was particularly uh, i know he he wouldn't shut up about this and i say that in the in the best kindest way um was electric sails he's uh very happy with this idea of charging your spacecraft and instead of using the the pressure from photons coming off of the sun using protons coming off of the sun because they have higher mass and they uh they don't fall off as quickly with distance and so um, that's something that's quote further on the horizon but um something that is going to be happening relatively soon that's that's near future propulsion um so i i think that my opinions uh fairly closely aligned to richard's david and dennis do you guys want to talk about uh, one or two things that really really grabbed you during this week yeah if i had one big takeaway it's essentially what you had said there which is that small sats uh or cube sats are starting to kind of take over you can do a lot of different things now with them and so people are being very clever and creative about trying to get lower cost missions to a lot of smaller bodies that you otherwise wouldn't, you know, probably be able to go and send some kind of big old flagship type mission to. And so um, one thing that I loved, I wanted to add to your, that arrow breaking uh, mm. uh, presentation was that they actually did test a one inch scale model by basically mm. firing this, yeah. <laughs> this bullet with like a little mini, you know, 
drag skirt around it essentially oh yeah i remember i remember you and i kind of gasped <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was fun to see but i mean one thing i think uh it's definitely kind of a next gen thing but i think it was the coolest spacecraft mission that i saw that was there i was at a lot of hayabusa mission hayabusa 2 missions or hayabusa 2 talks and they um, were going over a number of their results, uh, going to super detail on how the sampling was done, uh, the two samplings, uh, their estimate of, you know, uh, 100 grams, I believe we got. Uh, but there's no way to test that. And so we're kind of just have to wait and see uh, how the samplings ended up going. One thing that I didn't quite realize is that when they did their subsurface uh, sampling, right? They fired their uh, projectile, uh, their copper projectile to create that crater, that they weren't able to actually go and touch down into the crater. They uh, were a little off to the side, but some of the ejecta landed there. And so you can kind of tell that they did get some subsurface material, but I always had the image of them creating that crater and then going and sampling directly into the crater, but that wasn't quite how it worked. So why did they do that? Yeah, uh, essentially the crater, uh, it wasn't a very accessible zone. So that kind of piggybacks on that question of why didn't they do that is that it was a lot tougher for them to sample than I realized uh, as far as navigation went. Essentially, if I remember correctly, they had something like uh, they had what they called the Hayabusa method right from their first sampler. And that had something like maybe uh, really as large as like tens of meters accuracy. OK, it was some kind of like a pretty big error bar and where they would actually land because what they would do is they would drop down the touchdown marker and then as that marker's descending to the surface they would follow along with the spacecraft and that got them you know something that would have been fine if they had like you know a hundred square meters of smooth terrain that they could sample from but just like osiris rex they got there i mean they got there first and they saw that it was super bouldery and difficult to sample. And so what they ended up doing was coming up with a more clever method where they would basically descend to the surface and drop a touchdown marker and let it land and then go and descend with the spacecraft, find the marker and um, essentially hover over to it. And that would get them something like a one meter accuracy or so. So it's hard to tell what their actual accuracy was because we're, we're talking about single touchdown events, but um their their initial or their their first touchdown was a was ten meters away from where they intended to. Their second was within sixty centimeters. Okay, I, I at least have plus or minus one meter was their landing accuracy using their pinpoint touchdown method. Yeah. Where they drop it and then return. And I don't have the uh the older methods number here, but I think that was potentially like as high as like a hundred meters accuracy. That sounds because a little high. But. That is quite high. That's why I'm kind of, don't correct burn me. <laughs> it's 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 probably less than that, but <laughs> I don't know exactly how much. So let's just say tens of meters, which makes sense if you're dropping something. Yeah. So so these uh, these markers are, are really uh, fantastic. I mean, we've been talking about them for a while, but they can, like you said, they can lock on, hover, and use them for horizontal movement. They can use more. Uh, than, I think they can use up to two, uh, up to three markers. Uh, they can actually lock onto three different markers and not only have basically have have better and better 
uh, position understanding. But what's really cool is they ended up only using two out of the five markers that they have. Um, they're going to end up not launching one of the markers, but so two went on the surface, two went into orbit. Yes. And, and they, uh, put one in a polar orbit and one in a, in like an equatorial orbit. And they're use they're tracking them to better understand the gravity field. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. just like perfect for that, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. And they even they even showed video of the asteroid with you know a bunch of a bunch of uh, flakes all over the place because you know it's it's a dirty environment, but you could clearly see the two markers um, zipping around uh, in two different orbits. It was very cool. This has already been my favorite mission, and that's before they started sending beanbags into orbit around the <laughs> asteroid. You know what I mean? Mm. Like they really have thrown everything in the kitchen sink at this asteroid, which I just love. It's just so much fun. Oh, and I do want to give a shout out to a talk that I came in on the second half of, and I really wish I saw the whole thing. This is the Triton Hopper. Now, this thing is pretty wild. Triton or Titan? Triton. So this is the Triton. the icy moon. Yeah, the icy moon of Neptune. Triton. Wow, okay. Explain this, because uh, I'm a little bit... I'm surprised that there's anything being presented that has anything to do with Neptune. Ah, so I think this was part of the Ocean Worlds uh, session. And so Triton might have okay. a subsurface ocean. We know it has geysers and cryovolcanic activity on the surface. Voyager captured the shadows of the plumes that were kind of being emitted from the surface. It's got this cantaloupe terrain, which is the only place in the solar system that has this. So it's, there's a lot of like just weird, interesting things about it. And yet all we've got is the Voyager flyby, which is kind of a, a shame because, you know, the outer worlds are super interesting, but because they're so damn hard to get to, we don't know nearly as much about them as I wish we did. This is coming, this was a talk presented by uh, folks at NASA's, uh, NASA Glenn. They have been, the the PI on it, or the, you know, the team lead is this Steve uh, Olson. They've been basically playing around with this idea since 2006. So this is a long time coming. Uh, but the to try to boil it down to you pretty quick, you've got a an orbiter that uses, if I read this correctly, because again, I came halfway through the talk, it aerobrakes a bit on Neptune to put it in a capture orbit of Triton, which, I mean, so long as your trajectory's right, I guess you could do that. One fact I know about Triton, at least I think I remember, is it, it actually is in a retrograde orbit, right? Like compared to all other moons, or not all other moons, I'm sure there, well, there might be some, but it's a fairly large moon and it's in a retrograde orbit, or do mm -hmm. I have that wrong? That's just a little no, fact it, that I remember. it's the only large moon that's in a retrograde orbit. Because, yeah, okay. so th those are kind of a signal that it's a, uh, it's been captured. Yeah, uh, exactly. And yeah. so, yeah. And so, like, there's lots of, you know, small little asteroids that are captured that are moons, but this is the only mm -hmm. large one where it's definitely in the top 10 largest moons in the solar system. It might be, I don't know, eighth, seventh or eighth or somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. If if it didn't get captured, you know, we'd be having the discussion about demoting Triton as a planet as opposed to Pluto. Yeah. We probably <laughs> would have detected that first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. So, but uh, the, the thing that really makes us wild is you have this lander and the idea is that it uses the... Uh, nitrogen ice on the surface and then uh, a solid lithium block to heat the nitrogen ice to act as a warm gas propellant so that it can do 25 kilometer hops about once a week. And so it basically has an ice core uh, if it lands on nitrogen ice or a shovel if it's more snow-like. 
And so it's just an ISRU sort of hopper where it just scoops up this nitrogen, puts it in its tank. It spends, again, six days to basically warm up that gas and get ready, all the while it's doing science at that location, and then hops to the next location. And the idea is, over a several-year lifetime, to land on the South Pole and essentially hop your way all the way to the equator, which is about 2,400 kilometers, so about 100 hops. So that would be, yeah. So I, I had to definitely talk about Triton Hopper, even though I came halfway through the talk. <laughs> that was yes. just, uh, I wish I was there the whole time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, those that's really what jumped out at me. So the things that I saw that really piqued my interest, I guess I too would have to go back to Richard because we actually attended several of these sessions together. Uh, we went to the technical talk on uh, the nuclear thermal propulsion. That was really cool. Like, So that to me was probably the most interesting just because I didn't really know that it was even really a thing. Like I knew about nuclear propulsion, but I hadn't thought of it in terms of nuclear thermal propulsion. The idea of just using a nuclear pile to generate heat and then use that to drive your propellant like that is so simple and i it's kind of like why didn't i think of that but of course obviously this has been around for some time but uh it does seem to be getting traction and uh i thought that was really cool because it seems feasible like it i mean it, it doesn't seem to have i well i don't know what the trl is but super high because we have rtgs in use right, right. now we have solar powered ion vehicles out there right now it's just putting those two technologies together hmm. yeah well it's never just doing anything when it comes to space but yeah i that's that <laughs> sounds about right you have to create an engine that generates higher thrust than like i am propulsion because i believe that it does do that because uh i'm not sure what kind of uh thrust you would get but it's higher than an ion engine but much lower than a traditional chemical rocket because what it does is it basically just heats up hydrogen and you throw that out the back and you know that's your propellant but it gets a specific impulse around 900 to 1000 seconds which i actually thought was a bit higher than that but even then that's still very good so i thought that was really cool and then the the next big thing was the electric sail concept which again is something i had never even thought of like you know i've heard of solar sails but not an electric sail which is where you, i think you already explained ben that you use protons that come from the sun and then you use those to actually well you charge the sail and then you can essentially move by the momentum of the protons i suppose so you're using solar wind um as opposed to just light itself and i guess that's the key difference that's kind of how i think about it but uh oh i see you're using the 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 wind the particles coming from the solar wind instead of just solar radiation. Right, because you're basically using the mass of the proton to push the sail, not just light. But in order to do that, you have to have a charge because if not, then that proton, I suppose, would just pass right through your solar sail. So you have to, you know, charge the sail. Mm. But yeah, those things were like the big ones for me. Uh, and I saw some other presentations on, you know, habitat building on, on Mars and the moon. I don't know what I'm hoping for because that still seems like pretty far off because we have to get there first. But I always like to see cool concepts and... Uh, um, and I would like to see some new method of like large scale manufacturing of habitats by using the resources on that planet. But anyway, yeah, so that was really cool. And those were the highlights for me, I would say. Well, that and going to the Air and Space Museum and seeing lots of cool stuff and going to the <laughs> exhibition hall and seeing lots of cool stuff and getting lots of swag, which I guess is one of the, you know, little benefits of going to these conferences. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I guess if I if I want to talk about something that isn't just what Richard said, um, we talked to a vendor on the exhibition hall floor called Thrust Me, who I think I think I had seen their name before, but I don't think I knew what they did. Um, and this is all kind of related to everything that we've talked about. They're they're building ion propulsion for CubeSats, and the really crazy thing is instead of they they have a, a xenon thruster, but then there's a thruster that doesn't need pressurized gaseous propellants. Instead, they use solid propellants. So uh, I2T4 is the name of their of their engine. I thought that was I thought they were naming it after their propellant, but uh, I guess it's just solid iodine, which is insane. So they basically heat up uh, this. So iodine, you know, it's a solid, so it does its own pressure. You know, you don't have to pressurize a solid. I guess it's kind of a, a tank in and of itself. <laughs> And so you just heat this uh, this stuff up, and it gives off gaseous iodine, and then you can push that through your electric thruster. And it, it's it's less nice than xenon, um, but it's much much less expensive. You don't need a tank. You don't need special handling uh, certifications. You can just you can literally ship the engine with the propellant already loaded. Like you can practically just put it in the mail and ship it off. It's it's not that big of a, a big deal. So that, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about was a company called uh, Space Buzz, um, which uh, mm. everybody's probably rolling their eyes at this point because I've been talking about nothing else. Um, <laughs> but basically they're a lot like Challenger Center in their mission, but they basically um, are doing education and the kind of the compelling force behind getting kids to participate in this education is by using the overview effect. So they um, they have what they call uh, the overview effect in a box. It's a big trailer that looks like a rocket and they have um, VR headsets and you get to go on a little tour through space with, uh, what's his name? Andre? Uh, yeah, uh, Andre Kuypers, the Dutch astronaut, kind of gives you a little tour. And um, so it's really interesting because they're they're actually studying how the overview effect affects our ability to learn. And um, it's not just motivational. If you can engage the overview effect, which is where you, you know, kind of see earth without any borders from above, it really changes the way that, that the human brain works, which is just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're a Dutch company and they're working to get into the U S and I'm very, very excited for that to happen because um, I just sat and talked with them for like uh, 45 minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes, and just soaked up as much as I could. So we're, we're going to have them on the show for sure. They, they're definitely interested in coming to talk to us. So we'll let them tell their story the way that they want to. But boy, uh, that was very, very cool. Um, that was one of the things that really grabbed me. Yeah, it's a cool concept because uh, mm -hmm. it's a traveling rocket. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> put it on a flatbed uh, or a tractor trailer and kind of, yeah. If only you could actually launch and then just, you know, touch down in a school parking lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even even if you had to cheat, even if they could do that theatrically, that'd be pretty damn cool. Yeah, oh man. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I guess that's our IAC wrap-up. I mean, we got, we got to do so many cool things. Like, we can't even, we couldn't even go through all of them. Like, Dennis and I got to meet... Um, uh, May Jemison. Yeah. Um, but I was somewhere else and didn't. Yeah. Sorry, bud. Yeah. Yeah. We got to see, uh, Richard points out, we got to see Buzz Aldrin. Um, mm -hmm. That was do, cool. Do a talk. They, that was pretty cool. They do a, a shout out to Alistair and uh, Martin. 
Martin and, and Jason uh, and what was her name? Uh, we only saw her for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just like we we talked to a bunch of a bunch of listeners, and I'm sure that we talked to listeners who just didn't identify themselves as listeners because <laughs> um, a couple of people who came up to us were a little a little overwhelmed. Um, we talked to uh, uh, oh, I got to meet uh, Kyle, uh, Cy Kyle. Oh right, um, Cy Kyle was there. And uh, Lars Michael. Osborne, who's I th- I think I- I've interacted with him on Twitter. If I haven't, uh, if we haven't actually talked to him on the show, seeing Michael or meeting Michael at the uh, Udvarhazi was really he needed a moment to kind of be like think about how <laughs> kind of weird it was <laughs> to see yeah. us all in person with our yeah. voices. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I'm I'm sorry I can't remember every single listener's name that we that we got to talk to, but ju- I mean like and, and it's so crazy because like these are relatively famous people that we got to talk to and it's it's really weird because they're you know they're just humans like of course we know that but it's hard to remember but what's really crazy is when you meet people and you're like oh yeah let's have a little chat and you chat and then you realize who they are and you're like oh my gosh you're a Mm. person i forget his exact uh position but i think it was the deputy director of isro or somebody really high up there i kept almost physically bumping into <laughs> yep literally uh, twice i almost hit him <laughs> yeah and oh we didn't mention uh but but of course the off nominal folks uh jake robbins and uh anthony colangelo of uh we martians and uh, miko podcasts mm. uh re- respectively i mean just it's just so many people it was a pleasure to meet anybody there was not a single person who i met who i was like eh, i could have done I could have gone without meeting them. Every single person wow. was such Everyone a real life. Awesome. Yeah, well, what, totally. what? I mean, yeah, that's an interesting take because I don't know what it would take to make you. I mean, I can think yeah. of many things, but no one's that bad in person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Usually. No, no. I mean, there, there wasn't. I, I mean, I mean, even further, like there wasn't anybody that I wasn't enthusiastic about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everyone was a delight to meet, essentially. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So there, there are going to be so many interviews coming out of this. And you know, if we wind up with somebody saying they they don't want to do an interview, we'll probably do like a little uh, a little data relay talking about their paper because there were so many just fantastic things. Yeah, I guess I guess that's IAC. I mean, we got to stop somewhere, right? That's as good a place as any. Okay, let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. Yeah. So first up, I'm going to do a twofer here. So on November first, which is Friday, um, they're going to be briefing uh, the payload for the upcoming CRS-12 uh, Cygnus. That's going to be pretty cool. Um, so again, that's uh, November 1st at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, that's that's going to be on NASA TV. And then shortly after that, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, they're going to begin coverage of the, uh, the JAXA HTV-8 uh, cargo vehicle coming down from the International Space Station. So release is scheduled at uh, 1.20 p.m. Eastern Time. And of course, they're going to have to uh, undock and move the arms. So it, it's going to be kind of a long uh, period between 1 p.m. and 1.20 mm-hmm. is when they're releasing it. Next up, the only launch we have this week is uh, the launch of an Antares 230. And that's launching a Cygnus. And that's the name of that mission is CRS-NG-12. Uh, and that's launching the SS Allen Bean. So that's the... I guess this is the yeah the, so the NG twelve means this is the twelfth one right so this is the twelfth uh, the twelfth signal did they did they reuse did they reuse a number when they blew one up nope they did add, they did uh, add the number so NG eleven was the twelfth flight yeah so this is go. the thirteenth there you go so that's launching on November second and that is at thirteen fifty nine UTC and that's launching from Launch Area zero uh, A I think that's a zero yeah Launch Area zero A from Wallops 
Virginia. So we should be able to watch that one. And that'll be sometime in the morning here on the East Coast, not too early. So we can totally watch that. Yeah. And then after it's launched, he'll have to wait until November 4th, uh, Monday at 2.45 a.m. for coverage of the rendezvous and capture uh, for the Cygnus uh, at ISS with the capture scheduled at 4.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And finally, at 6.30 a.m., there will begin coverage of the installation of Cygnus Unity Module. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that means it is time to deorbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters and for everybody supporting us on Patreon. Again, you guys rule and we're the reason we were able to go to IEC and just grab all the future content we will be able to grab via interviews. And so, uh, yes. thanks for helping us, you know, as well as, of course, joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit or orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we will see you next time on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you